Cinephile. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? The great Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Cinephile. Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. Some of the best work he's done. The most famous person that follows me on Twitter, Will Arnett, <laughs> is in the house. Vigo Mortensen, a tremendous story about working with Al Pacino on Carlitos Way. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope you had a sensational holiday season. Welcome back and thank you for your support of Cinephile. Dan Stanzik, how are we doing, man? Terrible. <laughs> you're under the weather, so you're struggling. I want to thank everybody for your support on iTunes of Cinephile. I, I, I don't understand how this works, though, because at one point we were up to number five under film and TV ranked podcasts. But then the other day we're like down to 135th. So all I can tell you is this. Uh, it's a wild and crazy ride. Please do support us. Uh, go to iTunes, write a review, rate the podcast, and uh, we'll really be appreciative. We clearly have some nefarious methods here because – one of the, one of the reviews mentioned Stanzik, spell Stanzik's name correctly. Nobody can spell your name here correctly, so that clearly is an inside job. The and most people here listening to the podcast think your first name is Stan, last name Zick, Stan Zick. And the other one says, "Hey, Adnan and Dan S have good chemistry." I've never referred to you as Dan on the podcast, which is actually your God given name. I haven't seen that, but I, I like it. All right. There's been a couple of stands and a Dan S. And I go, no, this is Dan S. Uh, fun fact. I'm trying to get people here at ESPN to start calling me Dan. Really? Yeah. I haven't t- mentioned this to you. This Why could is be that? Slow- I, I mean, it's, you know, it's my given name. No, but everyone calls you Stanzik. I, I know. I, I don't think I'm okay with it. Really? Uh, there was one time here a few months ago where someone introduced me to someone and said, this is Stanzik. No, 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 I said, no, no, actually, no. my name is Dan. And it no. really bothered me. <laughs> so I'm trying to tell people, like, call me Dan. Okay. You're, you're a big offender of this. No, I, but I would never say this is Stanzik. I've never done that. I've said this is Dan. Yeah, but you know. But I do call you Stanzik without question all the time. I did not. Yeah, know I, I like blame Cowherd a lot for this. All right. You want to be known as Dan? I'll call you Dan. Yeah, I think on this podcast, I think I'm already Stanzik. I think that, that ship's already sailed. Okay, on the podcast Stanzik in life, I'll call you Dan? Yeah, let's do that. Call me the captain then. That's not going to happen. Why not? It's fair trade. I'll do what you want. You do what <laughs> I want. Is, why, why no. Is why is that not working? All right. Uh, coming up today. Owen Glaberman, the chief film critic at Variety. He thinks La La Land is the best picture of the year. He'll tell you all about it. Also, his great book, Movie Freak, which tells really funny stories, uh, not only about the film business, what it's like uh, knowing Oliver Stone, Ben Affleck, but also his personal life as well. So we're going to talk to him about that. Big guest, Mark Wahlberg, hyping up Patriot's Day. He's going to be here talking about his new film, and we'll also get some stories about what it was like working on The Departed, since I just recently watched that one again. And we'll also give you some streaming suggestions as well. But finally, the moment of truth arrived. You know, Scorsese's 74 now. Wolf of Wall Street came out three years ago. So this really is an important event when he has a new film come out. I take it very personally when I don't see the film on opening day. December 23rd, silence was opening in limited release in New York and LA. And I had to work a 15 hour day here. I know, poor me. Mike and Mike and then college football. So I said, God, what kind of a fan am I? I'm not seeing the first showing of silence. Thankfully, Saturday morning, got up, took the wife and kids. Two and a half hour drive to New York. You guys enjoy Shake Shack. I'm going to watch a film about religious persecution. I'll see you in three hours. I got to tell you, if I could bottle up the emotion of what it's like before a Scorsese film, I think I could live to be 250. Like that moment, like all these trailers, by the way, and I used to love trailers growing up. Now I'm like, no, let's get to the, none of these 20 minutes of trailers and the trailers don't fit the movie. Like normally when you see a serious film, you're seeing serious art house trailers. You go, okay, I don't mind doing this. Um, you know, I'm going to watch Howard's End. <laughs> I want to see something along those lines. But now like you're going to go see Silence and all of a sudden there's a trailer for Why Him? And I go, no, no, I don't want to see Cranston Franco right now. Like that's fine when I'm going to go see Central Intelligence. I want to see a trailer for Dunkirk, Chris Nolan's new warm film coming out next year. So it's a real mismatch of trailers. But anyways, I'm sitting there and I'm telling you, like I just looked around the crowd. I just want to like hug everybody in the crowd. Like this is a New York City, December 24th, 320 show, like maybe 25 people. I'm like these are true Scorsese fathers. These are my people. Like these people are serious film fans. Day Before Christmas, three hour film, Jesuit priests, let's go. When the stars from Paramount come in, like, you know, the camera zooms in on that Paramount logo, I, I swear to God, like, my, I'm, my heart is about to explode. I'm like, how many more of these opportunities am I going to have? He's 74 years old. 
Marty's got what, two, three, four movies left in him? I hope it's seven. I hope he lives till he's a hundred. But I'm like, you've got to savor these moments. And then the film starts. And I thought it was extraordinary. Let's get this out of the way right now. Silence is the best film of 2016. I think it is a profound and staggering film achievement and a testament to one of the great masters of cinema of all time. It concerns the story of a couple of priests who are trying to find their mentor, Father Ferreira. Uh, there are a couple of Portuguese Jesuit priests who are going to Japan to find out what has happened to their mentor. They've gotten word back from a couple of his letters that he has apostatized. That means that he has now renounced the church. Uh, he has stepped on a picture of, of Jesus Christ and renounced his faith. And he's now living with a Japanese woman and child. And so the two priests, played by Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield, set out on this journey to Japan to find out what happened to Father Ferreira. Driver lost like 40 pounds for this movie, and he looks gaunt like Christian Bale and The Machinist. I'm like, wow. Apparently, Scorsese encouraged him to lose weight. I don't know if he told them, like, you've got to do this to do this film, or they just go, hey, it's Marty. We'll do whatever you want. But I'm telling you, Driver looks like one of those, like, just his face is concave, like one of these haunted people who hasn't eaten in, like, months. He's so emaciated. And Garfield looks like that image that you might see of Jesus in movies. Like, the longer the movie goes, the long hair and the beard and the earnest eyes. And I was like... All right, both these guys are dialed in. And for all the talk about Garfield, you know, he's nominated for Screen Actors Guild Award for Hacksaw Ridge, which he's good in, but I thought he was even more powerful in this one. He's not getting any Academy Award buzz, but talk about an actor who really dives into the material. He does it. Right out of the gate, feels like Heart of Darkness. Feels a lot like Apocalypse Now. We're going to go into the journey of the war and find out what's happened to this once great soul, who is the character played by Liam Neeson. Beautifully shot. Rodrigo Prieto is a cinematographer. He also did Wolf of Wall Street. But here's the big difference. For all the Scorsese films, if you love Goodfellas and Wolf of Wall Street and Casino and The Departed, this is not that Scorsese film. This is more the religious trilogy of Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun. And it is easily his most contemplative film, his most meditative, his most restrained. When he did King of Comedy, he didn't move the camera very much. He was coming off Raging Bull, in which every frame was, was as he said, bathed in beauty. And he said, Sergio Leone, the great spaghetti Western director who did Once Upon a Time in America, he watched The King of Comedy and he told Marty afterwards, this is your most mature film. And Marty started laughing. He goes, mature. We used to say that when the movies were really slow and the camera didn't move much. He's like, I don't know if it's a compliment, but thanks. But I think Silence is his most mature film because normally what he does is he's very subjective. As he has often said, I don't like you to make up your mind. I want you to tell you where do you look. That's why I'm always moving the camera. It's always frenetic. It's in your face. I love using a loud soundtrack with a lot of music that's contemporary. There's almost no soundtrack in this movie. If you played for me right now the soundtrack from Silence, I wouldn't know what it is because there's so little music in the film. I don't even know what it is. It's, it's so minimalist, which is so unlike if you think of Mean Streets or any of those films that I mentioned, like a Goodfellas and how the music he uses. Here, there's no music. It's sparse. Rather than being subjective, he's being objective. His camera stays still. It's static. He wants you to observe what's happening to these guys. So they go to this village. <clears throat> they have one of the guys, Japanese guys, who actually speaks English, who says, oh, I can help you. So they start practicing their brand of Catholicism, even though Christianity has been outlawed there in Japan because the, the people there ruling the country. This is based on a book by Shusako Endu. And this was a, a risky move by me reading the book. I did this with Shutter Island, which completely ruined the movie for me because I already knew – what DiCaprio was after. But I said, I just cannot wait for this movie. So I'll read the books. I already knew the ending going into it, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You can watch the book and then watch the adaptation because the film really holds up a lot of the subtlety of the movie. So they go there and, uh, you know, Christianity and Catholicism has been outlawed, but they're trying to, uh, you know, practice what they can. So they're, they're serving as priests to this small Japanese minority. But of course, they're going to be found out eventually. Um, and that's where the film really kind of takes on the dramatic spurning. Uh, eventually, you, you get Neeson's reveal and what's happened to him and all the rest of it. But the scenes of violence and destruction, again, Scorsese, rather than being subjective, he's objective. So when you see the way these guys are persecuted, I mean, you see some of these Christians who are being crucified in the water and the water goes to high tide. Like, it's a horrible way to die. I can only imagine. And the camera just sits there and lets you take it in. Um, the agony that the characters are feeling you really kind of have it soak into your bones. And I guess the criticism some will say of the film is that it's meandering or that it's too long or too slow. But I, listen, it's a challenging film experience. It's two hours and 35 minutes and it's heavy material. 
But I don't go to the movies for something light and breezy. I want to be challenged. I want to be moved. And by the end of this film, like I literally needed 10 minutes. Like I, I had to rush out to go see my family. If I had my druthers, I would have just sat there for 10 minutes and just, just let it all soak in as to what I just experienced. I cannot think of a more profound film about spirituality and faith and the arduous nature of such and a film that is so wonderfully open-ended about all these major issues that to apostatize, if these priests renounce Christ, to do that seeking salvation, if it means the expiation of others, is that actually what God wants? Or should you never renounce your faith, even if it means by you not apostatizing, by you not stepping on a picture of Jesus, that means that other innocent people will die? I mean, these are the questions this movie is asking, and it does so in such a powerful way that you end up contemplating yourself. What would you do in this situation? What really is the nature of heroism and of faith and all these major issues? And I thought it was just so incredibly absorbing. Here's a couple of reviews. I don't often do this, Stanzik, but it got 89% Rotten Tomatoes. Of course, the critics are loving it, as they would with Scorsese's films, because his films are normally well-reviewed, and he's such a master. Here's a couple. Clayton Davis of AwardCircuit.com wrote, History has remembered Citizen Kane and Vertigo. These were two films not wholeheartedly recognized as masterpieces of their time. History now will remember Silence, a marvelous and inspiring cinematic experience not to be forgotten. Tom Schoen of Newsweek writes, Don't make plans for afterward. This film will leave you alone. This film will not leave you alone just because you've left the cinema. A really funny one by David Edelstein of New York Magazine slash Vulture. He talks about Hackstar Ridge and now silence. Garfield has found himself courting religious martyrdom and extreme courage, his face a mask of suffering. He has hereby earned the right to do two or three lousy but high-paying rom-coms without a peep of complaint. <laughs> it's true, man. Like, I can only imagine how just exhausting it was in the set. Uh, Garfield has spoken about the experience, and he said, working with Scorsese, it's very quiet. He said, Mel Gibson's funny. He's boisterous. He's rambunctious. Marty, it is dead silent. When you're on set, there is not a peep. And then it's action and it's serious business. And afterwards, you can have as much fun as you want. But th- this is not – sometimes you hear about serious movies and you go, they must have been joking around a lot in between takes. No, 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 no. This is a serious film we're making here. Let's treat it with the seriousness with which it deserves. The consensus review on Rotten Tomatoes reads, Silence ends Martin Scorsese's decades-long creative quest with a thoughtful, emotionally resonant look at spirituality and human nature that stands among the director's finest works. There's also just an awesome review by Matt Zoller Sites. We've got to get him on the podcast at some point. I tweeted that, you know, listen, it's been two weeks since I've seen it. I want to go see it again right now. If you told me it's playing next door, Stanzik, I would – you know, boycott my duties here at the my company and ignore my family just so I could watch this movie again because I just can't stop thinking about it. But uh, Zoller Sites wrote a great review of it, and I tweeted that, you know, I not only have enjoyed the film, but now I keep thinking about it because of his review, which is really what film criticism is about. You should not only enjoy the film, um, but then appreciate it and see it in different manners because of what other people say. Um, so I found that profound, and we'll, we'll get Owen Gleiberman's talk on it as well and see what he thought about it. But Stanzik, I'm assuming you have not yet to see Silence. You're not, you're not running out to see this one. Uh, no, it doesn't sound too intriguing to me. <laughs> I'm more interested in you taking your wife and three children to New York City on the Saturday before Christmas and saying, I'll see you in three hours. Listen. What did they do? Uh, Shake Shack. For three hours? Well, I mean, I guess the line gets pretty long. It but. is. See, it's a very long line. And then went out, did a little shopping. Then I met them afterwards. We got some, uh, got some ice cream, got a little hot dogs, you know, street meat. Unbelievable. Listen, I, if I was a real jerk, I would have just left them at home and just said, all right, see you guys later. At least I brought them with me for the journey. Then we all got to experience the journey together. Here's Zoller's site to read. The last paragraph's great. Um, Scorsese has been here before in one sense or another, not just in straightforward theological dramas such as Kundun and The Last Temptation of Christ, but in his crime pictures and thrillers as well. The entire running time of silence could be the self-flagellating fantasy of the young hoodlum hero of Scorsese's 1973 breakthrough Mean Streets as he holds his hand over a flame. And the terrors visited upon the priests and their flock are sadistic enough to have come straight from the reptile brain of Max Cady and Cape Fear. But silence foregrounds such things in the manner of a parable that is not intended to lead the listener to a single realization, but to stimulate thought and emotion. This is really great here. This, too, is characteristic of Scorsese, who studied to be a priest but became a monk for cinema, and who nonchalantly describes himself as a lapsed Catholic, yet has been preoccupied with sin and salvation for nearly 50 years, and weaves Christian themes, imagery, and situations throughout his work. You even find them in what otherwise might be straightforward commercial genre projects. Cape Fear, The Departed, The Color of Money spring to mind, in which Scorsese seems to be using theology to frame his story and characters in ways that he understands, maybe as a way of personalizing a story that's not all that personal otherwise. 
For a lapsed Catholic, he sure does see the entire world in terms of imponderables and spiritual tests. Maybe there's an alternate reality in which Scorsese became a priest. I bet he was a good one. That's a hell of a review. Matt Zoller cites RogerEbert.com. Fantastic. Also went and saw La La Land. That movie's getting a lot of pub. I got to be honest, um, musicals are not my forte. I've often said why. I just don't really see the joy of watching two people interact and then bursting into song. It's just, just it's a little tough to imagine. All of a sudden, verse is now being sprung everywhere. Uh, by the way, Silence gets four Maple Leafs if you couldn't figure it out. La La Land, the first hour I would have given two Maple Leafs. I liked it, but it's very derivative. How many more films do we have to see about a Hollywood actress striving for stardom? And then, yes, a jazz musician who loves jazz for the integrity of the music, and yet nobody supports him because nobody likes jazz anymore, and it's not fun, but he's going to stick to what he believes is more important, art versus commerce. This story has been done about a thousand times to death. So as original as La La Land is in terms of matching the contemporary with the past, I thought Damien Chazelle. At first, I said, all right, I get why people like it. I get why critics are liking it. The opening sequence is amazing. Bravura filmmaking calls to mind the opening of of uh, Boogie Nights, let's say, or Touch of Evil as far as major movies that make a bang. This is an extraordinary musical number. But I, I sat there for the first hour thinking, okay, it's all sizzle. This is all sizzle and flash. There's no substance. But thankfully, the second hour I found would to be more rewarding. Once you see some cracks in their relationship between Gosling and Stone, I thought the movie gained more emotional resonance and really became a deeper film experience. And the last 20 minutes, as good as the opening sequence is, the last 20 minutes are as audacious as any you'll see in any movie of recent vintage. I mean, you talk about emptying the kitchen sink. Damien Chazelle, who was the director of Whiplash and showed a lot of promise with that film, really here shows off that he loves cinema and loves those old Busby Berkeley musicals and Singing in the Rain and all the rest of it, uh, but also makes a story that's set in present day. Like, I mean, they, they have cell phones. They're, they're using verbiage from today. It's not like, you know, the, the background may feel like the 1940s and 50s, but it's obviously set in contemporary Los Angeles. Um, the real benefit with a musical is you've got to have really charming actors. And he has that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone, particularly Emma Stone. She's the real revelation. I thought she was a good actress in some of the works I've seen previously, but I was not prepared for what she does here. Um, she's funny. She's vulnerable. She's sweet. She can sing. She's romantic. She has depth. Uh, she's the heart of the film. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if she wins the Best Actress Oscar. It's either going to be her, her or Natalie Portman for Jackie, which I hope to see shortly. Gosling I love, obviously, because he's Canadian and he's just so handsome. And um, <clears throat> he's a great dancer. He's got great rhythm. And he's you know not only romantic, but he can play those emotionally complex scenes. Uh, my favorite film of his is Half Nelson, in which he played a, a teacher who's suffering with a drug problem. And he's also shown that he can do light comedy. I mean, he, he really is an, an effortless actor. Um, Blue Valentine's a great movie he did with Michelle Williams, a really good indie movie that got a uh, good pub on the circuit. I will say when he first started to sing, I was a little awestruck. I'm like, well, oh, this is the shades of Russell Crowe and Les Miserables. The first time Gosling starts singing, oh God, this could be a train wreck. So I thought his singing was, was average. Uh, but the dancing and, and the romanticism that he has is great. And nobody looks better in a blue suit than Ryan Gosling. So if you love musicals, you're going to love this movie. If you're like me and don't like musicals, but love movies, and love past cinema and love nostalgia and just enjoy light breezy entertainment that I think you'll really like it, which is why I'm giving three and a half Maple Leafs. And if you really hate musicals and hate anything that's light and frilly, then you're really going to probably hate this movie. And when it wins Best Picture, you're going to just throw yourself through the television and go, all right, I get that it's sweet and fun, but it's vacuous and vapid and empty, and it's like empty calories. Which, to that argument, I don't know if I have an argument. I mean, <laughs> Manchester by the Sea, I think, is a more powerful film and a better film. And I'll release my top 10 movies in the next podcast. I'm still going to see a couple more. I have Manchester by the Sea in my top five. Don't know if La La Land's going to crack my top 10. Um, but yeah, it really goes to one's taste here, Stancic. La La Land, if it's a good date movie, right? Date movie, for, for sure. Go see La La Land. Uh, let the record show Stancic Family Movie Night was revived. To see La La Land. The last time, as you know, was Bad Santa years ago. <laughs> Revived for La La Land. Um, I have plenty to ask you off the air. I don't want to give any spoilers. Yeah. But I will say, it should be noted, our guy, J.K. Simmons. Yes. Excellent in a very minor role. Very minor role, but still great. I love that, right? Chazelle obviously helped him win an Oscar for Whiplash. And now it's like, hey, whenever I need a favor, you want to just show up for a couple scenes? Hey, no problem. Fly me in. I'll do whatever you want, buddy. La La Land gets three and a half Maple Leafs. We'll talk plenty more about it on the months ahead with the Oscars. Last film to review, and then I promise coming up, Mark Wahlberg and Owen Gleiberman, is the film Fences. And uh, Denzel Washington is one of my boy Stanzik's favorite actors. 
<clears throat> so one time I think he, he tweeted something to the effect of Denzel's never made a bad movie. So then of course I had to crucify him and start mentioning the until I saw the movie <laughs> until I saw the movie Fallen. <laughs> I was under the impression he had never made a bad movie. Right. I well, saw I'm, Fallen. Was like oh, okay, all right, I'm out. <laughs> but I want to be clear. I, I think he is a great American actor. I think he's one of the top ten actors of all time, and particularly early Denzel. I think is as good as it gets. Glory and Malcolm X are two of my favorite personal movies, and I think he's an extraordinary actor. And I am happy to say. In the role of Troy in Fences, he has his meatiest character in decades. I'd say more so than even Training Day. I mean, he's great in Training Day, but much like Pacino in Son of a Woman, there's a lot of grandstanding, and it's fun because it's against character. Like Denzel's always a heroic, virtuous character now playing a villain. But I, I mean, listen, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Like, that's fun and everything. But what he's doing in Fences, oh, different level. August Wilson wrote the play. Not surprised Denzel won a Tony for it in the, uh, the play, which was on Broadway six years ago. Now he's made the film, and he really wants to make all of August uh, Wilson's works into an adaptation. It's about a garbage man uh, set in Pittsburgh in, I think it's the 50s or 60s. I'm starting to lose my mind. It's, it's, set, it's set in the recent history um, and about his journey. And Denzel really shows the, the, the cascade of emotions here. He's bitter. He's frustrated. He was a great baseball player that was denied the chance to play in the major leagues. Uh, because the color of his skin. So you hear him at times rant about Jackie Robinson. Ah, Jackie Robinson. I got a hundred guys who are better than Jackie Robinson, and I could still play today. And hey, who they got in right field? I'm better than that right fielder for the Yankees. Mentions Clemente at one point to set in Pittsburgh. So it must be the 60s now, obviously. He goes, Oh, I love Clemente. Clemente, that kid's good. That Puerto Rican. But they don't let him play enough. So I'm guessing it's like mid 60s before Clemente was a was a true star, um, or early 60s. But, yeah, I mean, listen, he has that frustration, that anger, and he has this dignity about him because he's what you would call in today's world a stand-up guy, a guy who goes to work, and he's a garbage man, but he takes care of his wife and family, and he drinks too much, and he rants and raves a little too much, and he probably has some emotional baggage that the movie's going to reveal a little bit later on that I'm not going to spoil that you go a little squeamish about that. But he's a stand-up guy, and, and he's one of those characters that I don't know if I like him, but I respect him. Uh, I think a lot of people, not my dad, my dad's the best, but people of my dad's generation I could see who are probably like that, who said, listen, I'm not really going to be home for the family. I'm not going to ask you about your emotions. I'm not here to care for you, but I, I put food on the table. Okay, I put clothes on your back. I fix the roof. That's what I do. All right. I work 12 hour days. So don't ask me for emotional involvement and how my feelings are and for me to give you a hug, but I'm here to take care of you. And, you know, I oftentimes think about athletes or coaches here that they regret not being with their families, but they say, I'm a good provider. And that's who Denzel's character is. He's a great provider. He's always looking out for his family. He gets his check, gives it right to Viola Davis. Like, all right, I got my money for my booze. Probably drinks a little too much, like I said. But after that, she takes care of it. She'll take care of the bills. Um, so Denzel really gives one of his best performances, easily one of his top five. Viola Davis, though, threatens to steal the movie because she's fantastic again. She's joked in some interviews that whenever she starts getting emotional – the phlegm just starts coming. Well, she's got another good emotional crying scene. The snot's flying. Shades of doubt. Uh, I love that movie, which she was nominated for an Oscar. It's only in one scene, if I'm not mistaken. I think she was in 10 minutes of doubt. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep, a great movie. Uh, but once again, she gets the phlegm going here when she gets, gets upset at, uh, at Denzel's character. But loving and caring woman, also strong uh, and supportive in her own manner, but not meek. She is not one of these women of the 60s who is just submissive and obedient. She also... Uh, stands up for her rights and lashes back when she feels she's being mistreated. So uh, their dynamic is excellent. They obviously have wonderful chemistry together. Uh, they did the play together. I'm sure in real life, I can imagine Denzel and Viola Davis got along swimmingly. Uh, he's spoken about the film because, of course, he directed it as well. It's the best movie he's directed. He hasn't done much as a director, but easily the best movie he's directed. Viola Davis knocks it out of the park. If you like Forrest Gump, which I didn't, but they got the guy, Bubba Gump, is in the movie. He's pretty good in the movie. I mean, the whole supporting cast is very good. Uh, the kid who plays... Um, his son in the movie, a couple of his kids as well, very good. So, listen, the only reason I would give it three and a half Maple Leafs, it is a little long. And like many plays, it does suffer from that adaptation. The first 20, 25 minutes, it does take a while. And you really feel that you're watching a play because it's one setting, the back porch, and you're like fairly static camera setups. And you're like, all right, hey, seriously, just because you're adapting a play doesn't mean you have to take all the dialogue. And you have to think cinematically. And so sometimes I think directors can be a little bit beholden to the source material and you have to kind of think outside of that box and how to make it more uh, visual. But I think Denzel finds his groove after about 25 minutes or so. Then I think he starts to work in more visual flourishes. and The movie picks up the pace. I found the last 15 minutes or so a little superfluous. I didn't think he needed it to end there. Again, I'm assuming that's how the play ended. So, again, he wants to uh, respect and honor August Wilson's work. But I found the last 15 minutes dragging a little bit. 
Um, in terms of length, by the way, I know people are going to be turned off by silence, a two-hour, 35-minute movie. Listen, can you can you remove five or ten minutes here or there? I suppose. But that's like saying Schindler's List is a great film, but you could have taken out ten minutes. Like, sure, you could. But I think movies like that, epics about tragedy, need to have the weight of human suffering. I think you need the weight of the running time to kind of soak over you. Maybe I'm alone in that opinion, but I don't think you can make hour 40-minute movies of Schindler's List or Silence or even Fences. Fences is 2.13. I think it could have been two, but I don't think it's an hour and a half. So even though I'm a guy who's often a proponent of shorter films, I'm never scared off by long films. If it's a quality movie, I got no issue with the running time. But go check out Fences. It's a really smart movie. It's an engaging film. Uh, it's, it's done with a slice of life you don't often see, which is black life in the 60s. Um, so go check it out. It's playing right now. To recap, Silence, Four Maple Leafs, La La Land, Three and a Half Maple Leafs, and Fences. Three and a half Maple Leafs. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and a thrill to welcome in Oscar-nominated actor Mark Wahlberg. His new film, Patriot's Day, in theaters, directed by Peter Berg, the true life story of what went down the Boston Marathon bombings. Mark, I just watched The Departed again a couple months ago because it was the 10th anniversary of that film, and you are fabulous in it as Sergeant Dingman. Um, you know, the dialogue is so good by Bill Monahan, but your delivery is so good. It's, it's not only because you just have so much coiled rage in that character, yet it's also really funny. Like, why don't you know, don't you know any Shakespeare and, and all the lines back and forth with Leo? I did read an article, though, about working with Scorsese, who obviously you get along with great now, but working on the set, it was a little bit challenging. Um, what were some of the, 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 I guess, the intensity of that set like for you? Um, well, it was really, it was, a, it was more of a scheduling thing. You know, Mario had to deal with everybody's schedule, and I was supposed to only be in for like five or six weeks. Uh, and I was very much in character. Um, and then, uh, you know, he then kind of told me he wasn't ready to shoot the last scene of the movie, which is just me walking into a room and, uh, you know, I point the gun at Matt Damon and fire and then walk out. And he said creatively he wasn't ready to go. And I had to go to Philadelphia to start shooting Invincible. Uh, so I said, okay, well, I got to go make this other movie. So I guess we'll, we'll shoot it another time. And then, uh, and then they said they were ready to, finally ready to shoot it. So I came in and I already had the hair extensions to play Vince Papali. And he was like, you got to take those things out. And I was like, what are you talking about? It took eight hours. And he said, well, you know, uh, you got to take them out. You don't look like the character. And I said, no, no, no. My character's supposed to, it says in the, in the script that I have on a, a shower cap. And so, uh, and he said, yeah, yeah, but I'm gonna, I don't want to do that now. And I said, when we had already shot part of the scene and I said, no, no, no. So we, we got into a big thing about the hair and all that stuff. And then I wouldn't take the extensions out. And then uh, we ended up having to come back again later on to shoot it. But, uh, Marty and I laughed about it after it was just, uh, it was really a schedule thing. Yeah, it's one of those things people, I guess, don't realize how, like you said, it was a condensed schedule. You had to go shoot Invincible. Even Nicholson wasn't supposed to be there that long. But, but I also read in that article, you said part of it was you just your character was so angry, so you were like, the hell with everybody. It wasn't necessarily Marty. It was Leo, Jack, everybody around you. Yeah, yeah, I was. Uh, nobody wanted to be around me at that point. Um, <laughs> basically left me alone. Yeah, Oscar-nominated performance, though, and you really were fabulous in it. I want to go back, though, to Boogie Nights, because I... I think about that movie a lot when I think of your career, and um, I think one of the, the greatest tricks of that movie, or I guess accomplishments from P.T. Anderson, is that you have the subject matter, which, which to many would be rather sordid about the adult film industry, and yet it's actually a movie with a ton of heart and, and sentimentality in a positive sense, because it's really about a family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that last shot where, where the Beach Boys is playing, God only knows, and you see Burt Reynolds going through all the different characters. You know, it really is, I wouldn't quite go family film, but amidst all the humor, it really is a movie with a lot of heart. What do you think about when you think about Boogie Nights now? Yeah, I mean, look, certainly when I when I was pitched the movie and the subject matter, I was like, yeah, this is not something that I'm interested in. But then as I started to read the script, you realize, oh, my God, this could actually be really, really good. Uh, and then once I met with Paul and knew what his intentions were and where he was coming from, uh, I felt completely confident that it would be something special. Um, but you know, it's, it's always, the question comes up, would you be able to do that movie now? And, and, you know, being a father of four, uh, married, uh, all that stuff, it would be tough, but it'd be tough to, to pass up on as well. Cause it's, uh, it's such a special story. Yeah, I mean, the whole cast is great. Yourself, obviously, you have to carry it as a central character. We have all these indelible supporting turns from, you know, Julianne Moore to John C. Riley. And I loved your scenes with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Obviously, we all miss him and, and his contribution to film. What was it like working with Philip? Bill's fantastic. Uh, you know, he uh, he and I and Paul and John C. Riley would spend a lot of time together. Uh, they were there uh, throughout the auditioning process and then the rehearsal process. Um, come to my house, have barbecues, uh, light fireworks off on my patio, get me evicted, things of that nature. <laughs> 
always a lot of lighthearted fun with those guys. We're yeah. talking with Mark Wahlberg, Patriots Day in theaters. Go check it out. The Fighter is a movie I think you don't get enough credit for. I remember being a little bit annoyed, like on your behalf. I said, okay, Christian Bale's great. He wins an Oscar for it. Melissa Leo's fantastic. She wins an Oscar for it. Amy Adams is nominated. What about Mark Wahlberg? Without you, there'd be no movie, right? Come on. Well, you know, the great thing about it is when we, when we made the movie and we were out there promoting the movie, you know, we asked ourselves, you know, what would Warren Beatty do? You know, being the star of the film, but also the producer, we always wanted to put the movie first. Um, so it was nice being recognized as a producer, but you know, it's one of those performances where, you know, you have to kind of just playing everything really kind of, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's a, it's a kind of different performance, you know, where you're not playing the flashy part. And they have, there, there were times, uh, when various people were falling in and out of playing the Dick Eklund role that, uh, people would encourage me to play Dickie, but there was only one part in my mind and that was Mickey Ward. And, you know, uh, you can't train that long. Oh, you can't have somebody just come in uh, and not really look the part because if you don't look believable as being the welterweight champion of the world, the movie's not going to work. And uh, and you know, I wanted to put that belt on, so that was uh, that was the big victory for me. Yeah, what was it like working with David O. Russell? Because we see the scenes, you know, behind the scenes where he's just yelling at you guys while you're doing the scenes. How did, how did you deal with that? Well, he and I had worked together on a number of occasions before that. We we made uh, Three Kings together and I Heart Huckabees. Um, and so, you know, as I was kind of getting the movie made and various people were falling in and out of both the Dick Eklund part and as well as the director's, uh, chair, um, David and I continued to have conversations. He just had such a great take on the movie. Um, that we felt like, you know, he was the right guy to tell that story. And it was obviously, it was a great opportunity for him to, to remind people of how talented he is and, uh, put him right back, uh, uh, in the, you know, on the A-list. Right, so you don't get a nerve when he's like shouting directions at you. No, I like that kind of work because you know you're all kind of in it together, and you know you just got to be free enough to try things, you know, uh, and shake it up a little bit. You know, we want to create an environment where it's it's open to creativity and collaboration, and you just kind of throw things out there. As good as the movie was, and I think again, it's one of those sports movies that succeeds because. You know, it's so much more than about boxing and about Mickey Ward and incorporates his family. I know one of the criticisms was, why wasn't there any material dealing with the Gotti fights? And then I read that maybe there was going to be a sequel dealing with that. Is that true, or what, or what was the creative decision? Well, I, look, everybody says you can't have uh, a story about Mickey Ward without having the three trilogies, right? Uh, the, the, the three great fights. But for us, I mean, this is a movie about Mickey and his family, and coming to terms with, with the relationship of his mom and his brother and all that stuff. Uh, and then we were thinking about the possibility of then doing a second story that focused on this amazing relationship that formed out of these these three epic battles where these guys basically tried to kill each other but became like brothers. Uh, and Mickey kind of had the relationship with, with Arturo uh, that he always wanted to have with his brother but wasn't really able to because of his addictions. So... Um, you know, that's still something that we discuss as a possibility, but you know, I'm 45 years old. So, I mean, the clock is definitely ticking. I don't know uh, how much more time I would have to be believable as a guy, uh, you know, in the ring. No, I hear you. I mean, definitely the movie on its own stands as a legacy. And to your point, if anybody wants to watch the Ward Gotti fight, you can always look those up and use the fighter almost as a complimentary piece. Patriot's Day going to be in theaters. Uh, tell us about this film and why it was subject matter that appealed to you. Um, uh, well, I, you know, it's it's it wasn't something that I just jumped at doing right away. Uh, obviously, because you know this is a horrific event that happened in my home, and it's a small community. Everybody knows somebody who was directly affected by it. But it was something that they were pretty adamant about getting made. There was three movies uh, competing uh, at the same time, and so you know what? I realized if I don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. And I want to make sure that it's handled with the respect and sensitivity that it deserved. And then I also, uh, in looking at how proud uh, I was to be a Bostonian based on how my community responded in this phase of tragedy, um, you know, I really wanted to share that. And the message of, of good versus evil and love versus hate is something, you know, that we, we continue to see uh, these acts of terror happening all over the world. And the message of love over, overpowering evil uh, needs to be out there. It needs to be seen and heard uh, as often frequently as possible. No, that's well said. Um has there been any talk about recency bias, that people saying you have to wait a little bit of time, or did you and Peter Berg say, listen, we've got a compelling story. Why do we have to wait five or ten years to tell this? 
Well, also the fact that these things continue to happen. So do you right. live in fear or do you kind of still just rally together and stand up and say, no, we're, we're going to stand up and we're going to fight for good uh, and we're going to unite. Uh, and we're gonna, and that, that, that's very inspiring. And so I think that message needs to be out there. I definitely encourage people to check out Patriots Day. I think you've also shown a real gift, Mark, for, for comedy as well, particularly in Ted. Tell me, what was it like doing that movie with a guy like Seth MacFarlane and, and taking such a wacky story but making it really funny? You know, Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career like Boogie Nights where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd, yet uh, when reading the script, you get so caught up in it, you know, that you never want to put it down. Uh, and you think if executed properly, it could be something special. Uh, so I read the script um, reluctantly, and then I uh, met with Seth, who I fell in love with. And then I, after seeing the test of the bear, I felt like, you know what, it was, it was a risk worth taking. I've never been one to shy away from taking risk, and uh, I felt like, you know what, if, if we got it right, it could be special. And, you know, it's biggest R-rated gross in comedy of all time. So. <laughs> definitely worked out for all you guys, and obviously the sequel as well. We're talking to Mark Wahlberg right now on Cinephile, the Adnan Burke movie podcast. Sometimes, Mark, I look at a, an actor's filmography and I get um, a little taken aback why certain films don't get recognized. And I understand that sometimes live in a short cycle. You put a movie in theaters and it goes for a few weeks, and if it doesn't hit the mark right away, people have short-term memory. But I think The Lovely Bones um, was really an accomplished movie that maybe fell by the wayside for some. And I know Stanley Tucci, you know, gained accolades for his performance for supporting actor was nominated. But I really thought you were terrific in that movie. I know it's hard to adapt a book, but what did you think about the film? Um, you know, Peter Jackson. It was it was great working with Peter. You know, he's such a talented guy. I think um, I think when the 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 studio and people had initially seen the movie, they were very very excited about it. It was one of those things. I came in at the last second. There was. Um, uh, Ryan Gosling and fell out of the part. Um, my agent called me uh, on a Sunday, probably like 10 o'clock in the morning, and said, hey, I need you to read this script. I said, okay, I'll read it during the week. He said, no, no, I need you to read it today. Uh, I said, why? He said, just read it and then call me back, but call me right away. Uh, so I read the script, and I and I told my wife, and she said, oh, I love that book. Um, and then uh, I talked to my agent. He said, you know, they want you to play the dad, um, but you got to fly there tonight and start tomorrow. And I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> I said, are you okay. out of your mind? And then I, I talked to my wife and she said, babe, and I j literally just gotten home from a movie a week before. And she said, you know what? It's, it's, it's a really special book and opportunity. I think you should do it. So I said, oh, I jumped on a plane that night. And the next morning I was on the set uh, shooting with Peter Jackson. Um, and it, when, when they uh, started cutting the movie together, people were very, very excited and really high up on it. I remember seeing Steven Spielberg at dinner, and he was saying how much he absolutely loved the movie uh, and was thrilled about it and you know, had really high expectations for it. And I think, I don't know, I think for some people maybe with because it, was so, it became so effects-driven that maybe that kind of took, took uh, a little away from the movie. But I loved the experience of working with Peter. You know, he's such a, a great visionary, and you're there to basically just service his vision. Uh, and it was a great experience for me. Uh, well said. I hope people do check out The Lovely Bones on DVD or Netflix. What are the odds uh, of a prequel slash sequel to The Departed? I know there was talk about it before. Bill Monahan saying, obviously, it would just be your character we'd be focusing on. But what's the likelihood of that happening? Uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm, Bill and I actually had spoken about it a bunch. He actually um, he uh, had written The Gambler for us. He just did a pass on $6 billion man. Uh, and was working on uh, Cocaine Cowboys, American Desperado for us. So, uh, you know, it's something that he's wanted to do, but I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. It was based on Infernal Affairs, which was a trilogy. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, regardless, that movie stands out, and I hope people check out Patriots Day. I cannot wait to see it. I'll last one for just on a sports tip. I know it must be a bit of a challenge being in Los Angeles and wherever you're shooting, but still to keep up to date with your Boston teams. Which team do you feel the strongest connection to? Uh, well, I would have to say the Patriots just because, you know, um, I've such a great relationship with Mr. Kraft and very friendly with a lot of the guys at coach Belichick. Um, but you know, my sons are diehard football fans, you know, the entire family is the one team uh, in sport that they all agree on. Uh, and you know, we're about to win another Super Bowl, So what's not to love? <laughs> Mark Wahlberg, go check out his new film, Patriots Day. I applaud you, Mark, not only for the work, but also on a personal level, the way you've talked about what you've overcome in your life and issues with the law and now being a devout Catholic and a family man and turning out good entertainments that also uh, really make us think and provoke a lot of thoughts. So appreciate the time, man. Good luck with the movie. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. God bless.
You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and it's a real pleasure to bring in the man I believe to be the best film critic working in America today. His name is Owen Gleiberman for 24 years. He was the film critic at Entertainment Weekly, then went to BBC.com. He's now the chief film critic at Variety, and he has enriched and nurtured my love of film unwittingly for much of his life until I got to meet him last year because he wrote a sensational book called Movie Freak. I encourage all of you to go check it out. We'll talk a little bit about that book and share some anecdotes, but first and foremost, thanks so much, Owen, for coming on Cinephile. Oh, it's nice to be here, Adnan. and you're, you're too kind. Uh, it is certainly true, man, because you've helped me, especially those films of the 90s, as we've talked about, Natural Born Killers and Nixon, and I think about reviews of indie movies like Todd Solance's Welcome to the Dollhouse and Happiness and how you, you helped explain them. And I hope that you can help explain uh, some of the holiday films right now that we're all enjoying. I know you gave La La Land your best picture of the year. We'll talk about that in just a second, but... I'm curious because, you know, part of Movie Freak, what I loved is the stories about some of the actors and such and directors. And you tell great stories about Oliver Stone, uh, who you befriended because, you know, you're such a supporter of his films. And, and I, I love the way you wrote in your book that a lot of directors are monomaniacs, you know, by nature of the job. They're just constantly talking about themselves and self-obsessed. But Oliver actually wasn't like that, that he was interested in your take on films and your opinion of his films. And you guys argued about Saving Private Ryan because Oliver Stone said Tom Hanks would never be in a war movie like like in an actual war. Tom Hanks would never be that character. And you said maybe he was just taking it personally because it was, you know, in views uh, by some that was better than Platoon. But uh, how have you found Scorsese when you've dealt with him? Well, I haven't talked to him for a long time, but I did a piece on him in the 90s, q to. Cape Fear, and I got to meet him and spend some time with him, and he's um, uh, a wonderful guy. I mean, he's just a, a terrific person, uh, a mensch. Um, he is obsessed with film, immersed with film. You really feel that about Scorsese in a way that you almost don't about any other director. I mean, directors love to talk about film, but with him, uh, all the sort of anecdotes and that whole aura you have about him as almost a kind of curator of film history was really true. He had, you know, at the time, this is sort of older technology, had VCRs in his, uh, in his apartment that he was constantly taping certain movies off television that, you know, you couldn't see anywhere else. So this is just an ongoing thing about him. And it's always part of the dialogue. Um, But he's a, a terrific person. And I think he always, you know, tries hard, but I think it's a challenge for these, uh, directors once they're, um, you know, in this new Hollywood that doesn't favor the kind of mid-budget film that they used to make, the kind of drama for adults, it's harder and harder for anyone to get those films made. And I think both Scorsese and Stone have struggled with that. Interestingly enough, uh, I was really on a pretty small island this year. With Snowden. In in loving Snowden. Yeah, you had a number uh, eight in your top ten, which I appreciated. I did. I, I saw it. I thought it was a terrific movie. I thought... And then it was, to my surprise, when it opened at the Toronto Film Festival, and I gave it a real send-off of a review, um, I saw that the press really felt quite the contrary. They were very ho-hum about it. They gave it a real shrug. Nobody said this is a terrible movie, because obviously Snowden was a perfectly watchable movie. It told the story of Edward Snowden. But a lot of people felt it was kind of a TV movie, that there was no real news there. Many critics compared it unfavorably to the documentary that had been made about Snowden, Citizen Four, which is undeniably an exciting film. And yet, I had seen Citizen Four. I had been a real fan of it. But what I loved about Snowden is that as much as I had read about Snowden in the couple of years since that had all gone on, the film was a revelation to me. It showed me something I had never seen before, which was not just about him or about his relationship with his girlfriend, all that stuff. The movie was about the way the surveillance state works, the way it evolved, the way it looks from behind those cameras. It showed me how this new America had kind of taken root. I felt like I knew infinitely more about it after the movie was over than I did going in. And more to the point, I, I knew something about it in that way that movies can tell you. I mean, if you really want information about the NSA, you could probably sit and read articles about it for two hours and learn as much as a movie could teach you. But movies through narrative, serious, dramatic, historical films of the kind that Oliver Stone makes, they can teach you things in a way that is indelible, that, that just shows you how certain things work in a way that journalism cannot. And I thought that Snowden did that. 
Yeah, I love the fact that even in your review, you said it's been a long time since Oliver Stone has made an Oliver Stone type movie. Like all these other, like, you know, World Trade Center is fine and some of these other projects he's worked on. But this one, I, I completely agree with you. This kind of tapped into what, what Stone does and, you know, the paranoia and conspiracy and all the rest of it. Well, what I said in my review, and I heard through channels that Oliver Stone was not happy that I wrote this, even though I gave him one of his few good reviews for Snowden. I said, and I and I and I kind of I, I was kind of balls out in saying this, but I just I thought a lot about it. It had been a while since I'd really hung out with Oliver, and I wanted to be honest about it. I said it has been essentially twenty years since Oliver Stone made a movie that mattered, uh, and I weighed that very carefully because I don't think it means that all his films were junk or anything like that. But it seemed to me that the very words Oliver Stone, what that what that name symbolized was not just that he made powerful films, but that in the eighties and the nineties he made powerful films that got out there. He seemed to almost define that in our era in a way that no one else did. And then Tarantino came along and in a different way did that same thing. But I do think that, that Stone made a good bid there to make a movie that really mattered. And interestingly enough, the movie in our time, the movie this year, that is kind of falling in that definition is La La Land. Uh, it's not a political film. It's an old-fashioned musical, or as I said, uh, a kind of newfangled version of an old-fashioned musical. It feels at once like an old movie and also like a very, very contemporary movie. But in a sense, it's a light entertainment. It's about love it's about joy, stuff like that. And yet, it is striking a major chord. It's doing incredible business at the box office. And I, I don't, anytime you talk about the box office, it sounds like you're talking about numbers, you're talking about profit, you're talking about, you know, this studio or that studio being, you know, pretty happy looking at those returns. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the box office as a measure of the kind of chord a movie can strike with the public. And I think La La Land has already begun to strike an amazing chord. And I'm just thrilled to see that. You know, Tom Hanks at the Telluride Film Festival, very graciously, because he had a movie there, Sully, that potentially could be competing with La La Land. But he came right out as an advocate for it. He said he loved it. And he said, you know, if the American public doesn't turn out for this movie, we're doomed. It says that that would say that the public is just not interested in great audacious movies the way that they once were well what the response so far to la la land proves is that we're not doomed the american public will very much turn out for a great movie like this um but i think it's got to be that good <laughs> or maybe they'll stay home and watch tv or at least wait for the movie on tv yeah i agree with you musicals are not my forte on but i was uh, struck by like you said the audacity of it the visual poetry of it clearly damien chazelle is a guy who who loves musicals of the past but like you said offered a contemporary feel he has very likable charismatic leads and emma stone and ryan gosling it really did a, a wonderful job of, of cutting mixing old and new i want to talk about your book movie freak we're talking with owen glaberman right now on cinephile he is not only the chief film critic at variety but also the author of a book movie freak i have an audience here Owen at ESPN, which I'm assuming is a lot of young males by the feedback we get. So I'm just going to go ahead and entice all of them, including my producer, Stanzik, and Rick Passmore sitting in today. If you want to read this book, guys, Owen not only tells you the life of a film critic, uh, you know, how many movies he sees a week, what's it like going to festivals, etc. There's a good Ben Affleck story I want him to tell in just a second. But also, he delves into his personal life, his relationship with his father, the challenges he had there, but also his love life, the fact he dabbled in a bit of drugs. And, Owen, this is going to get the audience to buy this book. There's some S&M in the book, and there's some bondage in the book. What can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, I wanted to kind of put all my peccadillos out there. And um, I decided early on that the way to do a memoir uh, about a film geek would be to talk about my personal life, my private life, but it wasn't just about a kind of exhibitionism or anything like that. I'm right up front in the book about the idea that I'm I'm a geek, or was a geek, still am, and there's a lot of us out there, and I wanted to tell a story that would be kind of about the inner life of a geek, because the second you talk about that personality type in our culture, in our pop culture, it tends to get reduced to cliches. I mean, this has been going on since the character of uh, Terry the Toad in American Graffiti. You have that, you have Revenge of the Nerds, you have Freaks and Geeks, you have a certain kind of character. We've seen in, in pop culture, you know, used to be the the guy with the, 
the pen protector in his pocket and then moved into the computer era. But, you know, it's this sort of precocious, brainiac, but sexually harmless nerd who usually doesn't get the girl or maybe at the end of the movie he does. Um, but there's something sort of innocuous about that stereotype. Uh, I admit I conform to certain aspects of it, but I wanted to say that, no, geeks are people who, you know, have some of these kind of um, more dangerous passions as well. Uh, I wanted to kind of break that stereotype because I always felt it broken in my life. I felt like I was a geek, but I didn't fit that central casting idea of one that I'd seen in so many movies and TV shows. And so I wanted to write a book that... Um, you know, put forth sort of a new image of that because I, th- I felt it was true. Yeah, and I think one of the other parts that I loved about film criticism is about Ben Affleck because I've often wondered this. You know, we've had these actors come through here, Owen. I-, I met Robert De Niro, who was wonderful, one of my heroes, Billy Bob Thornton, and yet I have to review their films, Hands of Stone and uh, Bad Santa 2, which I was not a fan of. And I wonder, how do you do that? How do you balance uh, your admiration and your appreciation for these guys and also being honest about the work? And I thought one of the best parts of your book was about Ben Affleck. You said when you met Ben, he's such a charming guy, and he told you he loved your review of Disclosure and the fact that you had the line about Michael Douglas in that movie with Demi Moore where it said, (laughs) rise up, white man. And Affleck told you him and Matt Damon would say that to each other all the time. And all of a sudden, now you've got to review Reindeer Games and try not to crush this. Guy. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, the line was "fight on, beleaguered white man." That's what it is. Sorry, fight uh, on, <laughs> which uh, a line that may, may seem even more relevant now than it did then. Um, well, you know, it's funny. I got to know I got to know Ben Affleck in the '90s, and I discovered he was, uh, you know, a charming guy, nice, very smart. Uh, one of the things I observed about him is I started to watch a lot of his movies and see that at the time he really was not. Uh, a great actor. He was okay. And I thought, why is he, why is he so compelling in person and not on screen? Uh, you know, in, in person, he came across very much as he does when he is doing one of his, you know, real time with Bill Maher appearances, very, very engaged, very smart. Um, I feel like he's a very intelligent dude where that almost works against him as an actor. Uh, it's not that actors aren't smart, but he has a certain kind of analytical intelligence that I think can get in the way of acting, of spontaneity. And so that's why he seemed often very wooden in these roles. I think he ultimately learned to be a better actor, partly by becoming a director. He had starred in all the films that he directed. And I think in movies like The Town, Argo, he's a, he's a better actor than he used to be. Uh, but when I was having to, after I'd gotten to know Ben, and I had to review all those bad Ben Affleck movies like Forces of Nature and Reindeer Games, I admitted in my book that you know, I took a little off my fastball in writing about him. I, I didn't I didn't overrate those movies. I didn't say they were good movies, but I was probably not as mocking of his performances as I could have been. And it's just it becomes a human situation. And I think it's true when you when you get to know directors a little bit, you might pan one of their movies. You might not be uh, as harsh as um, as you might have been otherwise. And that's why what I learned over the years is it's not so much that you have to avoid these relationships. I think getting to know people in the industry. And that can mean actors and directors. It can mean bold-faced names. I think that's invaluable. I think by doing that, um, it enriches who you are as a critic. You learn a lot about the movie-making process. You just learn about who these people are behind the camera. And I think that that ultimately is a good thing. But it can mean that when you're having to write that review, you might hang back a little bit from being harsh. And the thing I think that saves you from doing that too much is that these relationships tend to flame out. I think that, you know, directors move on to other people. You'll have a little period where you're friends with them. Um, I was friends for, uh, for a while with uh, Darren Aronofsky. I feel like we're still friends. We've never had a falling out, but I, I don't see him very much. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, you know, um, these things kind of wax and wane. I think uh, the golden rule for critics is that if you ever have a relationship with a director, say, where you're hanging out a bit and you feel like you're friends, but you really think, wow, that person's a great friend of mine. I think you're deluding yourself. These people are not great friends of yours. It's just not, it's just not kind of meant to be. I mean, there might be exceptions, but um, I just think filmmakers are very political animals. And um, you might be friends with them, but they're cultivating a lot of friendships all the time. Yeah, I, that's, I, that is well said. That's why I love your honesty with this. Last one for you, Owen. I know you got a jet, but your top three films of the year were La La Land, 
Hell or High Water, the terrific Texas crime drama, number two. And number three, Manchester by the Sea, which I also love. For those that haven't seen it, uh, why were you so struck by Kenneth Lonergan's film? And I'm assuming Casey Affleck's performance in particular. Well, I'll tell you something. When I first saw Manchester by the Sea a year ago at the Sundance Film Festival in January, I was very impressed by it, but I probably at that point wouldn't have rated it so highly to put it as my number three film of the year or whatever. Uh, I felt, you know, some of it was devastating to watch, but I felt at certain points a little bit removed from it. I was struck by the idea that the Casey Affleck character seemed almost at the same place near the end of the film that he was at the beginning. And I thought, hmm, what, I get that, but why, what kind of a journey is that? Uh, I went back to see it again after it opened, you know, this fall, winter award season. And seeing it a second time, knowing going into it that the Casey Affleck character doesn't change much, and that's part of the whole toughness of the film, but being really ready for that, uh, I saw how kind of subtle and incredible that was. I saw how that created its own special kind of drama in this movie. We're not watching a three-act Hollywood movie about a guy who changes and comes to a happy ending. We are watching the drama of someone who does it. I was prepared for that. What I also saw the second time all the more is that this is just a beautifully made film. It is, uh, you could teach this film in classes. Every shot, it's not just that the photography is great, that the movie looks great and the way it really kind of captures that wintry New England thing. And I lived in Boston for a number of years. I lived in that area. So I, I know that world and, and Kenneth Lonergan just got it so brilliantly. But beyond that, it is just a piece of storytelling, you know, for two hours and 20 minutes, every shot connects to every other to tell this person's story. I just came away with amazing, amazing respect for that. It didn't, the film did not ultimately hit me in the gut or the heart quite the way that Hell or High Water, which I think is an extraordinary film, or La La Land did. Those are the movies I just thought I just had the most direct emotional response to, and I think they're all so brilliantly crafted. But Manchester is quite an achievement, and I have to tell you, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't completely count it out of the best picture race. I think there's a, a chance that that movie could still win because it's exactly the kind of uh, the kind of movie that really impresses people in Hollywood, and I think it, it clearly has, and I think it establishes Kenneth Lonergan as. Uh, even more than the other two films he made, a major, major filmmaker. So, um, you know, as always, people are always talking these days about our movies over. Is it all about television when it comes to movies? Is it all about franchise films? The answer, as always, by the time you get to the end of the year is no, no, and no. Yes, franchise films and comic book films now dominate the movie landscape. And yet, incredible films are being made and people turn out to see them. I mean, Manchester is doing incredibly well at the box office for a slow-paced movie like that about this one guy's agony uh, over this tragedy that happened to him. It's doing amazing business. La La Land is going to be, I think, a blockbuster. There's still an audience for these films. So movies are just so much alive. And I would argue you'd be hard-pressed to find anything on television that could match up to those three films. I'm with you. I love your passion, not only on the page, but here on the podcast. As always, you can follow Owen Gleberman at Owen Gleberman. His book is Movie Freak, My Life Watching Movies. And, of course, he's the chief film critic at Variety. And for all those, Owen, who say that film critics and serious cinema lovers like ourselves are snooty, you also had Deadpool as one of your favorite movies of the year. I love that film, totally. too. You had it number nine. It was great. Oh, yeah. Ready to see that one again. <laughs> thanks so much for the time, man. All right. And um, thanks for having me on. Suggestions. Currently on Netflix, go check out Boogie Nights. I mentioned the opening of La La Land, how great that first shot is. Boogie Nights has a great first shot. Paul Thomas Anderson, whose early work I adore, said that he was inspired by Scorsese. The steady cam shot in Goodfellas, and that's why he came up with it. In fact, a lot of that movie reminds me of Goodfellas. It's about the adult film industry of the 70s. Uh, it's got a ton of humor and also a surprising amount of heart because all those characters, even Burt Reynolds uh, plays like a paternal character, even though he's this porn movie producer. He was nominated for an Oscar. Uh, he gives some of the best work of his career, looking out for Mark Wahlberg. Amazing supporting cast, including the great Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, John C. Riley. Uh, you've got a ton of actors. Don Cheadle's wonderful. Julianne Moore, you name it. If you haven't seen Boogie Nights, it came out in 97. It's currently on Netflix right now. 
Also, Caddyshack, which often winds up on the great comedies of all time. i got to be honest. I don't find it that funny. I don't think it stands up. So tell me I'm wrong. Go watch it again on Netflix. Passmore is about to pass out here. Go ahead. Watch it again. I, I, I find it really dated. Really a movie of like 1983 or whatever the hell it came out. I, I would prefer Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, Stripes, Naked Gun, any of those movies from the 80s. So go ahead. Watch Caddyshack again. Tell me I'm wrong. Uh, Hugo, we're going to do later on on Scorsese Stories, but it's on Netflix right now. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Be a little bit of homework. Next time I talk about it on Scorsese Stories, you'll have already seen it. Amazon Prime, The Infiltrator, Brian Cranston's film, January 9th. It's available. One of my favorite movies of last year. Where Did It Invade Next? The Michael Moore documentary. And also Dirty Grandpa. Not one of De Niro's best. I guess some amusing moments. Listen, I guess if you're going to support an actor, you got to support him all the way. Since De Niro's my guy, I had to watch Dirty Grandpa. Maybe you'll like it. I mean, if your if your humor is really sophomoric, then I think you'll appreciate Dirty Grandpa. Otherwise, you'll just wonder what happened to one of the great American actors of all time. Also on Hulu, Boxcar Bertha, another Scorsese film. That'll be on Scorsese Stories coming up in the weeks ahead. So go ahead, do some homework. Go watch that. Then you'll feel even better when I talk about it. Leaving Las Vegas, which is Nicolas Cage's best film. We'll do his top five coming up in the future. The Piano, Jane Campion's film. If you like a good art house drama from 1993. Also features a nude Harvey Keitel, along with Holly Hunter, who won the Oscar. Anna Paquin also, uh, one of the great child actor performances of all time. And South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. If you want a really movie that's so wrong, it's right. That's one for you. Trading Places, speaking of great 80s comedies that still hold up. I love that one a lot. And The Untouchables, Brian De Palma's excellent gangster epic written by David Mamet, starring uh, Kevin Costner, among others, Robert De Niro, of course, as Al Capone. And I loved Sean Connery, who won an Oscar as Malone. If you've listened to previous Cinephiles, I told stories about De Palma, which is a documentary which I loved, in which he told stories about The Untouchables. Coming up on the next Cinephile, I'll have reviews of Jackie, hopefully Lion, if we can squeeze it in there. And also, I'll give you my top 10 films of 2016. I know it's a couple of weeks after when it'll come out, but obviously they always backload these movies. I don't get screeners. People think I get all these screeners sent to me. No, I got to go to these Connecticut theaters and just go ahead and see whatever I got to see. So trust me, if you want to send me 12 screeners, if anyone's listening, you want to send me 12 screeners, I'll knock them all out. I'll go watch all the best live action shorts, best documentary features. No problem. I'll stay up all night. I'll get it all done for you. Uh, in the meantime, thanks so much for your support. We'll get a quiz for you next time. Stan's going to have a quiz for more cinephile shirts and also for that Scorsese documentary. Come up with a good question. We'll have that as well. And Ben Lyons will be our special guest next time as the uh, Oscar nominations will be coming out shortly. So Ben will give his reaction to that. Until then, for Dan Stanzik, Pete Genesini, I'm Adnan Amberg. Thanks for supporting Cinephile, and we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.